Okay, the question that has been hanging on the lips of the world has been answered. Who is going to be Joe Biden's running mate? And now we know it's going to be Kamala Harris. Hello, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury for National Preview Online. Welcome to another podcast. If you haven't already subscribed, please do so. You can subscribe by going to your Apple iTunes podcast and just go to NP Online and subscribe there. You Android users will soon have us in the Google Play Store. You can subscribe there. Or you can go to podbean.com, our hosting service, and download their app, which is a free app, and you can listen to us there. Please also follow and like our Facebook page, National Preview Online, and you can go to our website, nationalpreviewonline.com. So, now the tension, the waiting, the questions, the guessing is over. Kamala Harris is Joe Biden's pick. Now, what does this actually portend for the state of the election? Well, a lot of people were talking about who it was going to be. Was it going to be Amy Klobuchar? Was it going to be Kamala Harris? Kamala Harris was urged by certain individuals not to accept the nomination to VP uh, if it was offered. But really, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't someone accept the offer to be Joe Biden's VP? I mean, after all, if these Democrats really believe that he has a chance on winning, uh, and he does have a chance if we rely on fraud, uh, because this mail-in voting is the only way I can see Joe Biden winning the presidency, and I'll explain more on that in due course. But let's, for the moment, let's assume that he were to win. I think everyone, even if you're a Joe Biden voter, would have to concede the man has lost it. Dementia is accelerating. He doesn't know who he is. Half the time, he doesn't know where he is. This is very, very bad. So my prediction is uh, this is the way it'll shake out if Joe Biden is elected. Joe Biden will serve two years and will then resign for health issues. Now, this is important. Most people know that in the United States, as a result of a constitutional amendment, following the presidency of FDR, the president is limited to two terms, eight years in total. You can do four, get bounced out, try and run again, do four more, or you can do two terms back to back, but that's all you can do. Unless you've taken over for a president in the course of his term due to his illness, due to assassination, like it was the case tragically with uh, JFK, and Abraham Lincoln, and uh, McKinley, and Garfield. These people were interrupted. Now, of course, Lincoln, McKinley, Garfield, this was all prior to the amendment. But let's look at the Kennedy uh, case. Prior to, uh, after, I should say, post-FDR, the amendment said a person could serve in the office of president for a maximum of 10 years. So that means if you took over the presidency from the vice presidential slot, two years and one day into your predecessor's term, you could finish out his term and then legally run for two terms. So I always thought, based on that, given how far left the Democratic Party has gone, that their pick was going to be somebody that just in one package represented everything that they believe in advancement of minority rights, not just for equal rights, but to the actual detriment of 
of uh, white Americans' rights. The somehow the, the twisted thinking that everything that white Americans may have, and there's plenty of poor white Americans, I might add, but everything that successful Americans have, have been acquired at the expense of the less successful. You know, the old debate that Ronald Reagan used to talk about. These are people that look at a fat man and a thin man and can't help but assume that the fat man got that way at the expense of the thin one. It doesn't quite work that way. So I thought for a long time it was going to be Stacey Abrams because she was a female, she was African-American, and she's also part of the uh, lesbian community. So I thought that was big, get everything involved in there. Uh, Kamala Harris uh, isn't a lesbian. She's married. Uh, she's heterosexual. So I thought that might be a strike against her, but I guess maybe they didn't want to go too far. And they wanted someone who actually was able to win a race. Uh, Leslie Abrams lost the race uh, for governor in Georgia. Still thinks she won, but she lost. So by hook or by crook, they've gone with Kamala Harris. And I guess since Kamala Harris was a former candidate uh, and was an opponent of Biden, they had some heated exchanges on the debate stage, it looks good, they're mending fences, and so forth and so on. Now, Kamala Harris is relatively young, um, uh, and she comes from a big state. Not that they need her to win California. I think it's impossible in this day and age for a Democrat to lose California. But she brings that to the fore. And there's no question in my mind, if they win, she's going to be calling the shots, not Joe Biden. And then after two years, Biden's going to have to resign in which case she will become the president, she will solidify her position, and she will proceed to be the party nominee uh, in 2024. And if she's elected, she will be the nominee in 2028. And after 10 years of Kamala Harris, there will be you know, no United States left. So my question that I want to ask people, and the thing I want you all to consider is, what does this mean for us as normal patriotic Americans? How does this shake out against the backdrop of everything else that's happening? Kamala Harris uh, was first the district attorney in San Francisco. She had been an assistant prosecutor. She ran for the title of DA in the city of San Francisco after having some conflict with her boss and predecessor. And she took a very pro-prosecution stance when she was the DA of San Francisco. She increased the felony conviction rate. Uh, they went up. She was very, very pro-prosecuting, uh, violent crime and so forth. Uh, she began going after, uh, you know, truancy issues. She had some recidivism initiatives. Um, she cleared some backlog cases. And that's all pretty attractive when you're, when you're running as a, as a candidate for something. Uh, pretty good. And then she became the California Attorney General. Now, when she became the California Attorney General, she seemed to put a bigger emphasis on investigating law enforcement than she did investigating the actual criminals. That happens when people get to these political uh, positions. You know, the district attorney in any municipality is charged with primarily dealing with crimes that have actual victims attached to them uh, and affect those communities. When you become the attorney general, you get involved in ridiculous things like the New York attorney general going after the NRA, thinking she's going to break them. These become political. These aren't, these aren't real law enforcement issues to deal with. 
But when she became attorney general, uh, she began to go after anti-truancy efforts, figuring that kids need to be in school. Now, I won't quibble with that, but she was big in law enforcement accountability. Back in 2014, after of what is described as a rash of racially motivated killings uh, nationwide, Harris conducted a 90-day review of implicit bias and lethal force. And in 2015, introduced the first of its kind principal policing, procedural justice, and implicit bias training, designed in conjunction with Stanford University psychologist Professor Jennifer Eberhardt to help law enforcement overcome barriers to neutral policing and to rebuild the relationship of trust between law enforcement and the community. And all command-level staff received this training. Now, first of all, Stanford University is hardly what I consider a, a conservative institution. And I'm sure Jennifer Eberhardt is not exactly uh, a big Trump supporter. Look, I don't know what standard they used to determine that these killings were racially motivated, but I can tell you this much. Back in the day in the NYPD, the NYPD had and still has a very active bias unit. The bias unit ostensibly is supposed to investigate any crime where race uh, or ethnicity or religion uh, was a factor, a motivating factor in this person being victimized. That was the bias unit. About the only thing they ever did was investigate swastikas being painted on synagogues, and when a black person was the victim of a crime perpetrated by a white person, they would investigate it. Now, this is the part where I always had a problem with the bias unit. If a black person was the victim of a crime and the white person was the perpetrator, they would always say, oh, police are investigating for a possible bias crime. So in other words, when you had a black victim and a white criminal, you needed nothing else for there to be an implicit bias crime there. Racism and bias was implied simply because the perpetrator and the victim were of different ethnic backgrounds. The problem I had with that is that when you reversed it, when you had a black criminal and a white victim, you never heard them say on the news, oh, police are investigating for a possible bias crime, because they didn't. That was just the natural order of things. You'd have to have the black criminal being documented, saying, I'm, killing, I'm going after you because you're white, you white so-and-so, you... Hick you, hick you, uh, cracker you. They have to do a million things that have to be on tape before they even consider it. Meanwhile, the white vic, the white criminal who robs or victimizes the black um, victim, doesn't have to say anything. It's just automatically assumed to be racist. Now that assumption, as far as I'm concerned, is racist in and of itself. You assume racism simply because. The, uh, the, the players are of different ethnic backgrounds? If that's the case, why isn't it racist when the black criminal attacks the white victim? You can't be good for one, not good for the other. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. So we have here a woman who has an obvious problem with race. Um, I, don't, I don't think she likes white people. Uh, although she did manage to marry the first rich one she could find. Uh, he was a millionaire. Um, 
because I guess she wanted to make his life miserable, so she married him. But how is this going to play out? This is really what I want to know. How is this going to play out in this current climate? Police are on the run nationwide in this country. They're under assault. Everywhere they go, they're being attacked. They're not being supported by their respective departments. In these blue states, in these blue cities in particular, the people that are in the power are just running for cover left and right, and the cops are being allowed to just be fodder for these politicians. You have the Minneapolis Police Department, believe it or not, issuing a statement from their robbery prevention unit that citizens should be prepared to hand over their belongings and their cell phones and their valuables to criminals when demanded. This is from the robbery prevention unit. I guess the way they think the best way to prevent a robbery is to just voluntarily give it up, in which case it's not a robbery, is it? But this is what it's come to. The police department in Minneapolis is acknowledging they can no longer protect you from the criminal element because they can't even protect themselves. Portland, you saw what happened there. This action is being sanctioned by the mayor. Now, the mayor gets on the radio the other day on TV, makes a statement, and I thought he was actually growing a set of cojones, where he said, those of you who are out there thinking of protesting, when you start trying to burn down buildings with people inside, whom you've sealed inside, you're no longer protesting. You're committing murder. I said, whoa, holy shit. This guy's really finally woken up. And then I saw the other shoe drop when he says, and worse yet, you're providing ammunition for Donald Trump's re-election. So in other words, <laughs> it wasn't good that you were considering mur uh, uh, committing murder, but actually helping Donald Trump get re-elected was far worse than committing murder. These people are so full of it that it's coming out their ears. Cops under attack, lasers being pointed in their face, being blinded. The country is in a state of anarchy in these blue states. Now, I was driving in today and I was listening to yesterday's broadcast of the Rush Limbaugh show. It's a great show. It's the standard by which all others should be judged. And I just wanted to acknowledge some things here in the way of statistics that he put out there that you may not be aware of if you don't listen to that show. But I listen to a lot of other shows in order to get statistical information, uh, and I thought I would share it. Because this plays very heavily into this pick of Kamala Harris. I mean, if she is the pick, it means that the democratic structure thinks that this is what Americans want. They want a lunatic like Biden as president, and they want a radical like Kamala Harris as vice president, soon to be president. So they must think the majority of the electorate agrees with them, yes? Because if the majority of the electorate disagreed with them, there'd be no possibility or chance for this team to get elected. So the big question is, do the majority of Americans take this position or support this position? Because clearly if you listen to left-wing media like CNN, and the networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, uh, and MSNBC, you would think so. Well, I have some news for you. That's definitely not the case. Oh, let's not forget that sewer, Twitter. By the way, those of you who are conservative and feel you need a service like Twitter to get information out, there is a new conservative version of Twitter called Parler, P-A-R-L-E-R. 
It's growing in leaps and bounds. I give it a plug almost every show. Please join it and sign up. We have an account, National Preview Online on Parlor. so please send us tweets, send us suggestions. And as always, if I didn't mention at the beginning of the show, you can either reach out through Parlor or email us directly at N- uh, nationalpreviewonline at gmail.com and uh, send us questions or topics you'd like us to cover. In any event, Rush Limbaugh apparently is getting a lot of emails from you out there indicating your fear that we've lost the country, that the pendulum has swung too far to one side. And have we lost it? Has the left really achieved what they wanted? Well, I'm here to say no, based on what I heard Rush say the other day. I'm not talking distant past, talking about in this current climate, with all this rioting going on and all this looting and the tearing down of statues and the demonizing of our great heroes like Theodore Roosevelt. I will never set foot in the American Museum of Natural History again. They're pulling down his statue. Christopher Columbus statues being put down. George Washington statues. Andrew Jackson. You name it. In June and July of this year, what do you think the most watched television network is? It's the Fox News Channel. The Fox News Channel. This is a cable channel. This is a channel that people have to pay for, either by cable TV or through some streaming service. You don't get it for free. It used to be that the networks, the -the over-the-air broadcast, the free stuff, was the most widely watched of all television. But yet the Fox News Channel, according to the Nielsen ratings, is crushing everyone else. Prime time. Fox News Channel going away leads it. Now, what's prime time? 8 to 11. That means more people are tuning in to listen to see what Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, and Laura Ingram have to say than anyone else. Rachel Maddow is shrinking on MSNBC. And prior to prime time on Fox News, what do you have? Brett Baer, another very successful show. And you have uh, Shannon Bream. Now, I don't even know what the ratings are for the Fox News Channel, but that's got to be big as well. I'm I'm sorry, not the Fox, Fox Business News Channel. Uh, But the Fox News Channel is crushing everyone. Now, if that doesn't convince you, let's look at the man himself, Rush Limbaugh, the man who started it all. Now, of course, a lot of people say Bob Grant started it all, but Bob Grant was great, and he he had some syndication, but he was never as as big as as Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh's audience has been phenomenal. Now, for years, his audience was holding at, 20, at uh, 20 million. Things have gotten so out of control in the country, his audience now is beginning to grow. Now, by his internal model, they claim to have 55 million weekly listeners. Now, that may or may not be true, but even the conventional rating agencies now concede that he has 28 million weekly listeners, 28 million. That's a huge increase in his listenership. That's almost 30%. Now, what this means in practical terms is that in any 15-minute segment of any hour of his three-hour show, there are 7 million people listening. 7 real million, 7 million real people 
not Twitter robots, but 7 million actual people. What I would like to know, in addition to this, how many people listen to his show that don't listen to it live, like myself? I have uh, the app on my phone because I subscribe to Russia's website. Because my time is kind of spoken for. I do a lot of different things. And so I need to be as efficient with the use of my time as possible. And so while I love his show, I don't have the time to sit there and listen for three hours. And I, even if I did have three hours, those three hours would never be taking place between noon and 3 p.m. I have too many other demands on my time. So what I do by subscribing to his show is I download the podcast. See, not only do I produce a podcast, I consume podcasts. I download the podcast of his show, which has all the commercials taken out. So I get through a three-hour show in about an hour and 45 minutes. So what I do is on my morning commute, I listen to most of the show, and I listen to the rest of it coming back, and then I download that day's show and do the same thing the next day. So it works for me. So I really wonder how many people are really listening to his show because I doubt these Nielsen, rate, uh, Nielsen ratings are factoring in the subscribers to his website uh, that listen to the show as a podcast. So his audience may even be larger than this. The point of this being, these two things cannot be going on at the same time. It can't be that the country has moved so far to the left with this Antifa horse crap and Black Lives Matter and the rioters and the revisionists in, in history trying to rewrite history and saying things that uh, didn't happen that happened and things that didn't happen happened. It can't be. And yet you have this sort of an embrace of conservatism among TV viewers and radio listeners. So if anyone thinks that leftism and liberalism has become the norm in the country, and the only evidence they have of it is Twitter, which is, like I said, mostly robots, that can't be. Because if the country was that far left, it would be impossible for the most watched network in all of TV, paid and unpaid, in June and July in primetime, to be the Fox News Channel. It would be impossible for a radio talk show host like Rush Limbaugh to have a conceded 28 million weekly listeners, 7 million people at any given moment. The country has not moved that far left. On the contrary, I think people are pushing back, and this is evidence of it, people are pushing back against this horse manure that's being foisted down their throat by people like George Soros and these liberal professors who somehow think that America is a dangerous country because Donald Trump is currently running it. You think this is dangerous. You haven't seen dangerous like you will if Biden and Kamala Harris become the president and the VP with Kamala Harris actually being the president. You can forget it. Capitalism will be over. And capitalism is the only form of government, as JFK said, it may not be the most perfect, but it's the best one we've seen so far, and it's the only one that's actually kept a population fed and clothed to a greater degree than any other form of government has. 
You know, some of these people that wanted these young kids that want to embrace communism, they seem to be laboring under the misconception that there are no rich people in communist countries. They're rich people. They're the people who are running the government. The commissars in the former Soviet Union, the Politburo, the Communist Party in China. These people live very well. President Xi, I'm sure, lives very well. I can't say the same for the people who are living in poverty in this country. You're never going to get the sort of quality of living in a communist country, a socialist country that you have in a country like the United States. And everyone can partake in that if people would just get up off their ass and start working. Now, some of us, that's not possible right now because we live in blue states where our governments don't seem to want us to work. Look at New York. New York is a sewer right now. You have an idiot mayor who still will not let people dine inside at any capacity. Not even saying 25% capacity, 50% capacity. No inside dining. Everybody's going to be outside. And he's graciously going to agree to extend the outside dining past the 31st of October, weather permitting. I mean, do you really think people are going to be sitting outside in November and December where their coffee turns to ice and their food is cold? Old people aren't going to want to dine that way, retirees. And then he's talking about opening it again in the spring next year, either June 1st or earlier if weather permits. So that means he's intimating that there's going to be no dining inside or outside, only takeout from November or whenever he chooses to close outside dining until he chooses to open back up again. And you really think these restaurants and businesses are going to survive? This is the implosion that's going on. You'll see more of that if Donald Trump is not reelected. Tourism is the biggest thing in New York City, and you don't have any of it now because there's no reason to come here. There's no Broadway shows. There's no opera. There's no theater. There are no movies. There are no places to eat inside because they're closed. And since there's no reason to come here because there's no place to eat and there's nothing to see, there's no reason to get a hotel room. So the hospitality industry, entertainment industry, devastated by these idiots that run New York City and New York State. And this has resulted in a mass exodus from New York City in terms of the population. And I'm going to cover that on another show this week. But that's the current state of affairs. That's the fallout from Kamala Harris being the VP. That's what we can expect. This is a, a line in the sand that has been drawn by the Democratic Party. They really believe that you voters out there want this nonsense. I don't think that's the case. And the minute I heard, for all the reasons I mentioned, the minute I heard Kamala Harris, one name came right to the front of my mind. Geraldine Ferraro. Now, for those of you who are not old enough to remember who Geraldine Ferraro was, she passed away not that long ago. I think it was about a year, a year or two ago. Geraldine Ferraro was a congresswoman from Queens, New York. Um, she got elected. She became well-known. She was considered a rising star. And in 1984, she was the VP running mate. She was the first crack in the glass ceiling. She was the first woman ever to be nominated as a vice presidential candidate for a major party. And so now the Democrats are looking to crack Put another crack in the glass ceiling by nominating 
the first African-American woman uh, for a vice presidential ticket in Kamala Harris. Now, I said, when I saw Geraldine Ferraro nominated back in, in 84, and I knew that Reagan was strong, Kami was doing well, I said, this is a Hail Mary. They know they've lost, and they're hoping against hope that by doing this, they're going to be able to limp across the finish line. Ronald Reagan proceeded to beat Walter Mondale, who was the man at the top of the ticket. He was Jimmy Carter's former VP. 49 out of 50 states. The only state that Mondale carried was his home state of Minnesota, and he nearly lost that. He carried that, and he carried the District of Columbia, and that was it. Reagan got in with 525 electoral votes. It was and remains the greatest electoral landslide in the history of U.S. presidential elections. And I'm telling you right now, I don't care what you think, but absent this perversion that's being peddled out there called mail-in voting, which is nothing but a recipe for disaster, just fraud, all it is is fraud. They try it here in New York and they can't even begin to count how many fraudulent votes there are. If they can stop this mail-in voting and make people really vote for real like you have to vote, you're going to see the same thing here. You're going to see a landslide like you wouldn't believe because nobody is going to vote for this kind of insanity. Nobody is going to vote for a ticket that advocates the sort of lawlessness that we've seen across the country in these blue states and these blue cities. People just don't want to stand for it. Hardworking people, even the black community, which the Democrats think they have in their pocket, they're not going to stand for this. Because a lot of African Americans are very conservative socially, and they work for a living. You know, don't think that the African American community is monolithic like crazy Joe Biden seems to think. You know, the Hispanic community is very diverse. You heard those remarks he made the other day? But the, uh, not like the African American community, they were all the same. No, they're not all the same. The African American community has diversity within it, just like any other community. There are a lot of churchgoers in the African American community. A lot of very socially conservative people that don't stand for this. And I believe many of them are going to vote for Donald Trump because they have seen what he has done economically for the African-American community. He's done more for the African-American community economically to improve their situation in the three and a half years he's been president than the Democratic Party has done in the last 50 years. All they're interested in doing is keeping African-Americans dependent on government handouts. It's another way to make a person and keep a person a slave. Chains can enslave a person, but economic dependency can enslave them just as easily. And that's what the Democratic Party has brought the African-American community. Thank you for joining us today for the podcast, NPO Online. It is the fastest-growing conservative podcast out there. It is the newest conservative podcast out there. And with your help, I think it will be number one. Please subscribe. Please tell your friends about us, and please join us often. If you subscribe on your Apple Podcast app, you'll be notified every time a new episode is uploaded. Ditto for Podbean.com, our hosting, side, uh, hosting service. You subscribe there, you'll be notified every time a new podcast is up. And again, please email us at nationalpreviewonline at gmail.com and let me know what you're thinking and what you'd like to hear me talk about. God bless. And God bless America. <laughs>